What's up, guys? This is Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Recently on the Winging It podcast, Vince Carter and Annie Finberg sat down with NBA All-Star Kyle Lowry and recording artist Timmy. This week, 2017 first overall pick Markel Fultz joins the show to talk about living up to expectations and working his way back from injury in the NBA. Make sure to check out Winging It on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com. Thank you for listening to America's number one cave podcast. It's Andy Greenwald! Finally, my pastime of choice. Caving! My subculture, <laughs> my tribe, is having its moment in prestige television. You know we are talking about The Outsider because we stay spelunking yes. on this show. What's up? Are we going to talk about it? I stalagmite. <laughs> um, it's Monday, uh, so you know we're talking about The Outsider on the Watch podcast. Uh, a lot of stuff to get to today. Yeah. We're, we're a little warm already because we already did a little advanced pot. Yeah, we did the Briar Patch pot already. Andy's got a cappuccino. There's a new episode on tonight that I'm going to tell you why you should watch before this podcast is over. The episode of Briar Patch tonight? Mm-hmm. You could start off. Why don't you bat lead off, Ricky Henderson? You want me to? Tell us all about I'm it. I'm going to drag bunt my way. We got Bobby on the boards. That's a baseball guy, right? We can talk baseball. Indeed. I'm this ready to go. This is practically a fucking Wawa in here. You know that? <laughs> you got so much big Philly energy. Just makes a little regular and a little hazelnut. Just a, bunch of, just a bunch of guys drinking French vanilla coffee and talking about the Phillies. Eating <laughs> combos. How about this Alec Bohm? Am I right? <laughs> do they say, am I right in Philly? <laughs> How long has it been since you've been there? <laughs> Where do they say that? I don't know. Like my The wa- internet? <laughs> the internet. It's more of the internet thing. Tell me about Briar Patch. Tonight, a fantastic television show. Episode four, 11 p.m. Eastern, 10 p.m. Central, after a cracking episode of Raw. (laughs) Um, Actually, also after Better Call Saul, episode three is on tonight. So this is a a blammo night of television. Uh, Episode four, Bread Knife Weather. Um, Very proud of this episode. That's the name of the episode. That is not your Griselda mixtape that you're you're recording. (laughs) No, but... Bread Knife Weather! Um... This is a pretty, I'm really proud of this episode. Tonally a little bit different. Um, This is the funeral uh, episode for Fallen Officer Felicity Dill. Um, Definitely the episode where the temperature on screen matched what it was like off screen. Yeah. We were in a cemetery filming for a lot of hot, sweaty days. Uh, Rosario's brilliant, beautiful performance and just a lot of really great ensemble work and a lot of surprises about what happens there. Um, I think if I remember correctly, this is when you, when we either talked on the phone or you were texting me and you were like, P.S., don't let me write eight-page scenes set during the day in a cemetery in the American Southwest. I've been writing you that for weeks, (laughs) for years even. This is the time when it finally came true. Um, No, I'm just really excited about the momentum we're building on the season. I'm really excited about our new time slide, and I think people are going to dig this episode a lot. So, And we'll talk about it uh, with special guest, our director of photography, Zach Galler, will be here on Thursday to talk about this episode. And the um, art of cinematography. In general, yeah. Yeah. but so Visions of light. I I really feel like this is a curveball episode, kind of a bottle episode in a way, certainly tequila bottles. uh, written by Wei Ning Yu, directed by Desiree Akhavan, and uh, I'm excited for people to watch it and get the reaction to it. But there is a dearth of uh, scenes set in deeply claustrophobic, structurally unsound <laughs> caves. Yeah. Um, how, so th- how fucking dangerous does a cave have to be yeah. to be, like, not in the cave map? I, 
Okay, so we're going to talk about... Do you want to talk about Netflix first or do you want to talk about Outsider first? Well, I got a head full of steam about The Outsider. All right, let's then do we, Outsider we'll first. So Netflix. last night was the penultimate episode, Tigers and Bears, I believe it was called. Yeah, it sounds like Briar Patch. <laughs> um, I, got, I got a couple thoughts. Like, really, I want to start on a meta level about this episode because, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Blah, blah, blah. What was most interesting to me was I feel like this episode was a was a a sly and devastating critique of late stage capitalism. Mm. Because let's really unpack the fact that this lady in 1940s 1947 1947 World War II Tennessee, America, the suburbs are being built was like so I found two holes in the ground leading to a bear cave. One hole, yay big. A man can walk down it. Another hole. So I'm going to build a gift shop over boy it. Boy-sized. Yeah, boy-sized. I'm going to ignore the boy-sized hole. Build a Richard Scary storybook-like business atop it out of what appears to be Lincoln Logs mm-hmm. and charge admission to the hole. Now, let's take that one step further. The economics of this hole. Yeah questionable or or maybe beautifully straightforward you give the lady a quarter mm-hmm. you may enter the hole to your heart's content or death there or appears death. to be no rule past that <laughs> this is reminding me in a lot of ways like yeah. my horseback riding yeah, experience yeah. in mexico you paid to be on the horse we have fulfilled our contractual bargain anything now post bridal I'm surprised that there wasn't just dozens and dozens of skeletons in that cave. There were no maps. There were no cautionary words spoken. You know what there were? Yeah. Saber-toothed tiger claw tracks. Yeah. You know what else? There, there was seemed to be no ledger or log of who has entered oh, or who has book. exited. Yeah, sure. Leave your email. No, <laughs> put you on the... no tips. Uh-huh. Uh, no, no security she measures. flashlights. She did have a large number of flashlights, um, presumably because the people who brought the flashlights expired and the flashlights made their way back up eventually. So, again, I know you've read Thomas Piketty's book, Capital. So I know you want to bring your time spent with this book to bear here. Yeah. Isn't there just something just, it's, it's beyond ironic. It's just, it's kind of devastating that for all of this woman's effort to build her business on charging people admission to a hole in the ground, there's always a smaller hole. You know what I mean? That's the Foxconn. I get two Here's what it is. You. Here's why we don't make things in this country anymore because of the Foxconn hole located just outside of our Apple factory hole. Okay, you see in the big picture? I got a couple of things for you here. All right. What's the market cap on that business? Great call. Like $3.75 a year. Like how, how many right. paying cave customers are you getting in 1947. So when my guy... These guys just got back from the war. Yeah. You know, like maybe they're a little bit f- fucked up. No no offense <laughs> yeah, to the sure. greatest generation. They've been in some holes. Say like, I've, I fucking repelled Hitler. You know, yeah. I, wa- I went to the, the, the South Pacific mm-hmm. and I came back. Guess what I'm not doing? Going in a cave. No, I feel like they should so know I don't even. Yeah. I don't think that she's even taking advantage of the Truman boom here. You know what I mean? The, the Eisenhower era. What, what I think would have been worthwhile. And again, we've commented that maybe The Outsider should have been eight episodes. It's 10. Had they maxi-seriesed it. Oh, 22? And gone to 12, 15, 22. <laughs> there could have been an episode set in this past timeline where a local hedge fund guy ar- ar- arrived. And now oh, remember, yeah. in 1947 in rural Tennessee, a hedge fund guy is a guy who manages the hedge. 
he charges a nickel to go <laughs> in the hedges. <laughs> Give me the fun for that. He comes by and he's just is talking to her about, about growth. Hmm. You mentioned you want to talk about Netflix. It's the same thing, man. Yeah, man. Yeah. How how where's the growth potential for the people walking into a fatal hole business? Well, I mean, obviously someone came along and was like, what you guys got to do here is have a festival of caves. Just because one cave visit is not enough to draw anyone's attention. That guy is the fucking Bob Iger of, of mid-century Americana because that guy invented a cave business after the previous cave killed 40 people. Yes. He yes. was like, I know you're hurting. I know this is a tough time for the caving community. But what if this, but bigger? Yeah. And they were like, well, <laughs> what, what could go worse? Um, I, I'm going to zag a little bit here, though. I'm going to go Belichick on you. Okay. What about the accountability? Mm-hmm. What about those kids? Maybe they shouldn't be, like, sneaking in the back of caves. Oh, my God. And, you know, I mean, like, yes, there could be a sign that said no trespassing or something mm-hmm. like that. Nothing was stopping these kids. But, like, I don't even feel like those kids had, what was the reason they went in the cave? boyhood man yeah <laughs> this is yeah. listen when we've we've known each other a long time and uh-huh. we've traded stories of our tender years no this is a richard linklater movie <laughs> you and me the youtube cameras come on every seven years yeah. <laughs> capture us in our element um we look better every time you told a story early on that i've talked about on this podcast and you've talked about on multiple podcasts and it is you know one of the defining uh boyish adventures of your life when you would, you left the house under poor conditions and trudged through foot-high snow yes. to see the film Heat Yes, every day for a month. No, not every day Whatever. for a month. Had these boys access to a... A, a Cinematheque. Yeah. Yeah. To a, to, you know, to a 23-screen theater, maybe things would have worked out differently. Yeah. They could have seen Maltese Falcon or the something. The larger family, but they had two options. Option one, stay in the barn under the watchful eye of their father. Uh-huh. Or jump into a cave. <laughs> and That's and reader, <laughs> I took the road less traveled. I jumped in a cave. And I never came back from it. Let's be really yeah. real. There are three people in this room. How many of us, when given the choice between staying at home or jumping feet first into a mystery cave. Well, what's the would what are, choose mystery What are my cave. other options? No, none. Apparently, narratively, none. Yeah, I think everyone listening to this podcast knows I am team no cave. Like, I if you're not, living in rural Tennessee in 1947, the chances are that you're not going to pick up like the Cardinals game on a radio. You true. know what I mean? Like, you literally got nothing going on. Are you trying to make a case for the cave right now? Yeah. I'm trying to say, like, what what else is going on in rural Tennessee in 1947? Um, I'm I'm struggling. Like, the mom looked pretty fucked up before they got lost in the cave. Mom seemed troubled. Yeah. Like Doc Holliday or something. Or mom is the fucking smartest one there. Because when dad was like, honey, those boys are as good as home already. Now me and my 30 friends are going to have a live forever party 20 feet under the Earth's surface. Yes. So I also have another question. I'm sorry. I feel like we're really misleading people because I really love the outsider, but we're really on this this cave party. Also, <laughs> I I salute them for for caring. Yeah. Did you need thirty guys? <laughs> it's a this cave is enormous. Yeah, but that's you need, like you could field a 
a Division One football team with what they brought down there. You need one guy to mark the cave. Yes. You need one guy to hold the flashlight. You need one guy to yell to one of the boys. You need one guy to yell to the other boy. <laughs> you need one guy to synthesize the yelling into a larger collective yawp. Uh-huh. Side note, shouldn't a show that has detoured into being primarily about caving change its name to The Insider? Because The Outsider is what I would be in yes. a caving community. Yeah. They'd be like, I don't trust this guy. Why? Because his face is melting off and he's wearing a bear skin? No, because he won't go inside caves. Everybody was up. By the way, everybody, the end of this episode, and we'll talk about the beginning, I promise. The end of the episode, everyone is just like, oh no, we should warn them because the bone crunching monster inside the cave is now aware of them. Were none of them like, we're going into a fucking cave? No, because that's the, th so we get into a s somewhat murky territory here mm -hmm. where this was an episode with a lot of plans, you know? Yeah, we've talked about this. And, uh, you know, shout out to Alexa Fogel. Everybody in this show is so fucking good. So good. That you're just like, I'll watch you eat chicken, Bill Camp. Go for it. I love that scene. Smoke weed and eat chicken. I loved that scene. But the sort of, Seventh inning reveal mm. that El Cuco is telepathic mm -hmm. was was a twist for me. You yeah. know what I mean? I, I didn't know that. I also, I think it's interesting that El Cuco, which seemed to be a virus. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not a keyword that I'm just throwing around lately anymore. Okay. Is in fact a Tennessee local. Seems to really enjoy the Southeast. <laughs> you know, he's SEC country. <laughs> and he kind of travels from Vanderbilt to... <laughs> To the Smoky Mountains. Uh-huh. Down to get gets a little, you know, Ole Miss, maybe. Okay. But I thought that El Cuco was like an international phenomenon, but it seems like he's been haunting no, no, no. the SEC since the 1940s. No, I don't no no. That there was no El Cuco in El Cavo. Oh. You know what I'm saying, Michael just... Bloombido? What I'm saying is El Cuco a little scratch. It's a little little itty bitty scratch of Claude and then right. knows everything Claude right. knows. Right. And thus is holding up in the bear caves. Where his most, Claude's, all of his trauma is. His well, familial trauma. Yeah, exactly. The larger, right. Okay, so, so he and his brother know I guess about I, that. I guess I misspoke then. El Cuco is, is international still. Now, yeah, he's an LLC. I think that El Cuco does subscribe to the SEC network <laughs> when possible. You know, I think that was... If it's part of his... If it's part of its larger package. His carrier carries it, yeah. It's right. complicated, but I think he, in his Disney Plus subscription, added ESPN. Just for game day. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. He would, when not caving, he would hold up a sign behind Chris Fowler and you the know, other guys. We make that joke, but I would bet probably low triple digits that mm -hmm. someone will hold, hold up an El Cuco drawing <laughs> at game day this year. It would not shock what? me at all. But the question is, where will they do it? One of the more and will they know that they're doing it? What? Or will it just be like, this is my uncle? Lightly touching his neck. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that is amazing about, from the beginning, one of the reasons we loved the show was that that sort of spicy combination of Richard Price's just like, you know, procedural in the best way. Mm -hmm. like Yeah, just, Ben Mendelsohn being like, can we talk to your wits? To your wits. That's what yeah. I was about to say. Yeah. But now Ben Mendelsohn also has to say, this uh, Coco. You know what I mean? Like everyone now, even Glory shows up to be like, when when that lady showed up and started recapping the plot of Pixar's Coco, I was mad at you. You know what I mean? But she has to say it. Yeah. And I love it. Everybody's got to believe. Uh, look, this show is dope. 
it's very much in the last three innings are all Stephen King here. Like all the language is price, but the story logic has now been turned over to Stephen King. Whereas like the first few episodes are obviously about what if the most impossible, unbelievable ideas that you have about a criminal case are actually true. I mean, it feels like we had Jason Bateman on this show like two years ago. That feels so long ago. Yeah. And now it's been become fully about this idea of confronting an unspeakable mythological evil as a group rather than calling and say, you know, I'm Seal trying Team to Six. think of, and again, I say this, I love this about the show. And one of the reasons why it's been so fun for us to cover week to week and to and to be so invested in, I'm trying to think of well, we've another. Discovered we care a lot about caves so, so much more than I ever thank realized. You television. I, uh, I I'm trying to think of another show that has detoured so wildly from what I thought it was. Yeah. In a positive way. Yeah. I mean, I like this show too. This is not the show that was episodes one and two and three, but I really like that it ended up here, and it's kind of gone bananas in a really fun and engaging way. It doesn't feel It started as the night of. Then it had a middle act that was largely about Holly Mm -hmm. and this sort of Sherlock Holmesing of El Cuco. And now the last three have basically been it with a bunch of cops. And I think it's incredible. It's just really, it's disarming almost when you're like, this room has Cynthia Erivo, Patty Considine, Bill Camp, Ben Mendelsohn, Standing around. And none of them are allowed to speak in their native accents. I would do, I would pay any amount of money, honestly. To hear the, the like the, off mic, the, like the between shot thing. Vibes, yeah. When Bill Camp and Ben Mendelssohn are staring American daggers into each other's eyes and then immediately <laughs> break and just start talking about the, the All Blacks rugby team, which yeah. I know is New Zealand, but in that moment, I had to grab <laughs> something from the Antipodes and it was the best I could do. Um, here is a, a question that I do not necessarily believe in. Okay. Oh. Are there too many people on this show? Well, that problem is being resolved as we speak. <laughs> Let me tell you something, my friend. The network gave that note, and uh, Jack delivered. <laughs> Jack did deliver. Um, I was very proud of, uh, again, this is a non-traditional Sunday night show for the Greenwald household, mm-hmm. yet we're sticking to it. Yeah. Um, How's the wife feeling about it? My wife and I did have a little review of everyone on the McBain meter before the show started. I think Andy broke the fucking meter. Well, that was the thing. And and that should have been a tell that he was going to survive the episode. Um, My sweet boy, Andy. So she was like, obviously him. And and I was like, no, no, no. Absolutely not. Because it's too, he's too obvious now. And so the misdirect has to be from the guy that we kind of like, who hasn't done a lot other than say, he felt the taste of copper in his mouth from fear. R.I.P. Sweet stash. <laughs> Next time your taste buds tell you something, yeah. listen. Yeah. Next time someone offers you a meal of terror, how about instead of taking small bites, don't take any bites. Well, there was just like a lot. So between him and Andy, it was really a, it was, it was the coin toss. Because Alec was like <laughs> yeah. taking little bites, copper in my mouth. And then Andy was just being so nice yeah. to Holly on the drive up where he's just yeah. like, hey, you know, like, Here's this movie quote. What a, what a fun game to play as we go confront. No, that wasn't it. Remember the conversation where he's like, you know what my favorite couples are? The ones who love each other oh, yeah. so much Whose and for so long. Are connected. <laughs> they they expire together at the end of long married lives. Like Holly should Holly should run. Yeah. Yeah. Um the reason I ask is because um when you are watching such an incredible group of actors, mm-hmm. 
This was one of the first episodes where I was kind of like, oh, I wish that there was a little bit more time spent on fewer people rather than spreading the the sort of wealth around to everybody. Even though there are just so many like remarkable moments from all these different performers, um, I I loved that chicken scene. I loved the scene of them going oh, driving off to go buy like to get like the best chicken in two hundred miles. We are such easy marks for any show set in the American South that Danes to show an eating establishment. Yeah. Remember True Detective and the Bon Me? That's all I was thinking of. Yeah. We dined out on that scene for years. Yes. Yeah. And still, I, I loved, I mean, Bill Camp is such a, just such a great performer and presence. And the role that he's playing, specifically within the drama, is just terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah is the one guy babysitting the brothers, stepping out of the room just long enough to blow the whole thing. I mean, that's, you know, that stuff like that has to happen to keep the plot moving. Well, their opsec is a little flawed. They're like having an open conversation yeah. about it while Claude is quote unquote napping. You know True. what I mean? So it's just, you but know, try, try to. You cover that over with a, a, a ripping toke on a jazz cigarette <laughs> and then the natural yeah. desire for more fried chicken. Yeah. Did have a question about the logistics of the fried chicken order. They drove two hours to get it. Mm-hmm. Weren't going to have any there. Rookie mistake. Then camp uh, then digs in. Camp digs in on site. They bring back what appears to be two small bags for, I want to say, 11 people, <laughs> all of which remains in their fridge. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you're not supposed to eat before caving. Yeah. I don't know. Um, also, do you know that, that Claude's brother, Seal, mm-hmm. uh, also English? Oh, it's so like, funny. It's like we don't make things in this country anymore. Unbelievable. Except, <laughs> Except we make caves. <laughs> And uh, we made Alec. That's Jeremy true. Bob is American. <laughs> That's true. So, <laughs> um, how do you feel about the way that these last three episodes, or these last two episodes that we've seen, so uh, nine and eight specifically, mm-hmm. since they've been at the house, and then it essentially takes them an hour to be like, okay, let's get in the car and go to the caves. Yep. And now we're going to get Ted. Do you feel like this is, they have earned their episode order, or do you think you're like, are you like, this could all have been done it, in six or seven it, it could have, but there's also something that I think I was alluding to before, too, which is there is something to be said for not just competence, but um, skill, mm-hmm. you know, and part of the skill of television historically. And I think still, although we, we frame it differently because we talk about, you know, aesthetic opportunities and you can craft episode orders to often you can craft them to the way you want to tell the story. Um, part of this has always been about hiding the ball. And making it feel natural, even when you suddenly have, you've lost an episode for budget reasons, or you've gained it, or whatever, mm-hmm. the things outside your control. And, you know, that's why you bring in the people who are working on the show. That's why you have Richard Price doing it. He'll fill the space. He has been not just a good novelist, but he's been a screenwriter for sure. a long time. And this episode was written by another favorite of ours, Dennis Lehane. It's just, it's just nuts. That- it's just murderer's row yeah. of crime writers. And so... These guys, we love them for their personality and their style and flair, but we also love them because they keep it fucking moving. Mm-hmm. You know, like a, a Dennis Lehane novel, whether it's his best novels or his, and he doesn't write bad ones, but his but more procedural ones. less great novels, yeah. they're great reads, uh-huh. you know? And, no, and, I mean, same thing for, I mean, even something as atmospheric as Lush Life has like a... Yeah, there's a pace over. and yeah. a rhythm to it. And so what this does, if you pull back 100 feet, like, yeah, this probably should have been eight episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not. And so you look at what he did do and the way he moved the pieces around and ended it where he ended it and set us up for where he set it up. Um, 
it works for me. I mean, there, there wasn't a moment when last night's episode was dragging. I think the hardest part for me was probably for many people, again, there have been some tonal and storytelling shifts. And so suddenly we're with these boys clearly in the past, but we're not quite sure. Sure. Are they, the, are they Claude and Seal? Is that who this is? That's what my wife was asking. I'm like, I think that they would be, that would mean Claude and Seal are 70 years yeah, old. Th- that yeah, that was the giveaway. So there are a couple things that were a little unclear, but it, it's not unpleasant. You know, it's not taking you out of it. It's just, oh, here's a different type of storytelling. Uh, for this episode, really for the purpose of filling the space. Yeah. But there are worse ways to, to pass the time. Um, I, I think that the interesting thing is the show has done such a, honestly, it's been subtle, the shift, to the point where now we're just talking about it in a completely different way than we talked about it eight weeks ago, mm-hmm. um, has done such a good job of shifting what it is, existentially, what kind of a show it is. What kind of an ending are we prepared for? Because I do think that after the after the last few episodes, a finale that, you know, is the end of it, basically. Or, yeah. or is the Stephen King ending where they confront this evil and there's some casualties and then, you know, the survivors move on, has been earned and would be entertaining and narratively satisfying. But I'm very curious about what what parts of the first half of the show are going to come back right. in terms of the emotional storytelling about loss as the impossible demon. And that and that also, I think, came back up with the reintroduction of the district attorney character. Yes, which was a surprise. And it was was a little bit of a wrinkle, because I, I think, are we supposed to understand that the people at the cave do not know that this has happened? That there's I, been another I guess, and is this something, child? Is, has, did, is this something that happened when they were en route to the Tennessee I don't know, I mean, that was community? a little bit strange. I couldn't tell whether he was like, this means El Cuco is not just in one place right. or whether it means I am now being confronted with the reality that Terry Maitland definitely didn't do this. I think or, that was or, part of it. Yeah, obviously. Um, but whether or not there will be a cover-up to that extent, because you bring <laughs> up a good point. It said season finale mm-hmm. in the coming next week on, on The Outsider. So while I have a hard time believing they're going to bring back this group of people to talk about this specific experience... I would imagine that given given the response to this show, we will see more Outsider at some point. I hope so. I think that would be great. But it, but whether that would be the continuing adventures of El Cuco as he as he continues his uh, quixotic Outsider quest, what, what other for the Democratic nomination <laughs> for Cuco? It's about the super delegates. Do you, does does Pete dropping out help El Cuco? Well, I think it helps consolidate the anti Cuco vote. Yeah, you know what I mean, right? Um, so in that sense, right. I just think, do you think Warren thinks she can knock Kuko off at the convention even if she doesn't win a stage? She's got a plan for it. Yeah. Just like these guys going into a cave. Um, Season two, Outsider. Yeah. What, what like, American pastime lost to history would you like to see El Kuko haunt <laughs> this time? Water parks? I, I want him to focus on things that I just don't want to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. So bungee jumping, zip lining would be a good one. Action sports. Um, generally, yeah, like, like low-grade action sports. Yeah. Um, I did, I did think, uh, to your point, bringing back Jason Bateman and Terry Maitland, like, boy, if they had been onto this case one scratch earlier, yeah, and they would have just at been the, following Keith Hofstetter, like that had been the inciting incident, and they were just because I, I do it, from what I can, what I personally on my own whiteboard can piece together about Terry Maitland's final days of just affably coaching Little League and supporting his family and making them breakfast presents an it can easier hang than Claude's time in the caves yeah, of rural Tennessee. That's right. You know, it's the luck of the draw with things like this. And I think, you know, Holly, thankfully, can can roll with it either way. Yeah. 
But that would have been that would have been definitely a a dramatically lower stakes scenario. All right. So obviously we'll be back on next Monday to talk about the finale of Outsider. We're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Simply Safe. With home security, there are two ways you can go about protecting your home. There's the traditional way where you wait weeks for a technician to do a messy installation that costs a small fortune, or there is the other way, Simply Safe. Simply Safe is everything you need from a home security system. It's award-winning protection. It's the two-time winner of the CNET Editor's Choice Award. Simply Safe blankets your whole home in safety. You barely notice it's there. But what's truly remarkable is you can set this up all by yourself. Anyone can do it. It takes 30 minutes, an hour tops, and there is absolutely no trade-offs to your safety. You'll have an army of highly trained security experts ready to dispatch police to your home at a moment's notice 24-7. It's why The Verge calls Simply Safe the best home security system. Check it out today at simplysafe.com slash watch. Get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial at simplysafe.com slash watch. Simplysafe.com slash watch. We're back uh, on the Watch Podcast where we talk about caves mm-hmm. and we talk about crime and we talk about um, our feelings about both. And then we're also going to talk a little bit about streaming TV because I wanted to discuss this uh, Netflix Top 10 with you. There were two things I wanted to discuss with you. One is this Netflix Top 10. Two was uh, the fantastic news that one of our favorite shows, Terriers, is going to be streaming on the FX on Hulu channel, which mm-hmm. is which is awesome. But I, I kind of wanted to talk about the idea of like lost shows and shows being revived for not not remade, mm-hmm. but just being rediscovered on on these streaming services. But first, really quickly, this Netflix top 10. Obviously, you've been thinking a lot about ratings recently. So I wanted to ask you about this. So yeah. this is uh last week Netflix announced that uh they were going to add a top 10 most popular things both shows, movies, or overall on the service to the homepage, and that those shows would have a special top ten badge when you when you saw them yeah, on the on, on the, the front cor- page. on the corner of yeah. there. Yeah, and uh, Cameron Johnson, who's the director of product innovation, innovation said that um, shows and films make these lists. It will also have a special top ten badge wherever they appear on Netflix. That way, you can easily see what's in the zeitgeist, whether you're browsing by genre or through your personal list or when searching for specific shows and films. Currently, on my on my Netflix.com oh, website. We uh, I see The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez as number one on Netflix in the US today. Okay. Uh, number two is Love is Blind, the finale. I don't understand what that is, but people love it. They do. Angry Birds 2, is the it movie. A, is it a show that like sets up blind people? No. They sit in rooms and there's like a, uh, like a, like a LED screen. I'm going to stop you there. Who's they? Like people, contestants on this game show who are oh, like, it's a game show. yeah, and okay. then you go into a pod and you start talking to a person on the other side of the wall, but you can't see them. And then you're like, we're engaged. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of like 90 Day Fiance. Never seen that. And it's kind of like Black Mirror. Trying to remember. I have seen that. Okay. Number three is Angry Birds 2. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm looking at this too. Number four, I am not okay with this, which I, I've watched a few episodes of. And I think you would like. It's, mm-hmm. it's very much like End of the Fucking World. Uh, Altered Carbon's back. That's number five. Oh, by the way, Altered Carbon is back, did not make our list of content. Oh, yeah. And this may be putting to a lie, like, what we conceive of. I never even said that was complete. I said we were going to miss, like, 50% right. but of I'm the I'm saying stuff. one of the things we missed is apparently the number five show in America yes. on the service that many people have. We also missed 
Mewtwo Strikes Back. I didn't miss it. Did you watch that? No. Oh. Uh, all the Bright Things, but All the Bright Places, rather. Our, fr- our friend Liz Hannah's movie. Oh, yeah. And uh, Lock and Key, Narcos Mexico, and Pete Davidson. I did watch Pete Davidson. And I've watched Narcos Mexico. So, so I'm there. I'm there at the, I'm at the b- bottom end of the lineup. My question is this. Does it matter that Netflix is doing a top 10 when they still don't tell us like what that means? Well, I think that's the biggest question. I mean, what this, this, what this seems to me, people love lists. Mm-hmm. And uh, people will pay attention to this more than they would pay attention to whatever category it replaced. Trending now, recommended for you, popular on Netflix, whatever. Yes. Yeah. Um, what is the methodology here? Yeah. And what is, what is the math? I mean seems like putting altered carbon in there or in lock and key uh that's what i'm i'm curious about those two shows because those are very expensive original programming plays by netflix Mm -hmm. uh neither has broken through in terms of not just coverage by our podcast but i feel like neither broke through mainstream coverage whatever that means anymore um whether it's you know big uh, write-ups in magazines or feature profiles or reviews by the reviewers that we like to read, or certainly then the next part, which again is not uh, any indicator of anything really, but it's something that we go by, like the Twitter conversation. Sure. Um, so there are, a lot of, there are a lot of possibilities here. Is one that they are creating their own stats, which they can do, and promoting their shows surreptitiously this way by claiming they're already popular? They can do that. They yeah. don't share their information. And even if they, in the pieces they share are hard to verify or, or even sometimes understand. Uh, or is, is it that Netflix's algorithms are so powerful that when a show like Lock and Key appears on the service, it is micro-targeted to people who probably might like it. And all of those people give it a chance. And on a weekend, they see something new for you. Netflix hasn't steered me wrong before. I try it. Mm-hmm. So is this reflecting that a mil- millions of Netflix subscribers pressed right. play on the first episode. Did they then press stop? Right. Did they then continue the series? That's the other thing. How we don't much know time about this. did they spend a, in each episode? Did a, they watch the first five minutes and then exactly a, a something like the Love Is Blind, which I am fully aware is popular uh-huh. because I've heard about it nonstop despite not understanding it. Pete Davidson special. That's an easy watch. That's a one one off thing. And also, I mean, in a weird way, and, and, a lot and, of their and the stand- kid stuff is also. I get it. Yeah, a lot of their stand up specials. First of all, it's just like, it's so easy to watch them. Mm-hmm. Second of all, I think with the Pete Davidson thing, that was like almost more traditionally ruled out than a lot of stuff where it was, it felt like a bunch of the bits from that special were either clipped out or written about because they were about Ariana Grande or whatever, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, his father. Um, but it's, it is the shows like Altered Carbon that I'm most curious about. Well, because I'll- I'm just like, oh, okay, so in in my personal experience not a lot of people chat to me about altered carbon but also what it says about the future of netflix's programming strategies because obviously they believe and you know we were joking before about growth strategies but that is their model is to just show growth constantly in all areas to a lot of people obviously there's value in having all types of shows for all types of viewers at all times and they've been spending billions literally dollars to build up their own libraries in every area that said um a cartoon uh, a reality show, like a cooking competition, a stand-up special, are demonstrably and reliably popular uh, drivers of viewership and also conversation sure. for them. And they are wildly cheaper 
than a second season of Altered Carbon. Or, as we just saw, multiple seasons going forward of The Crown, which is not a show we talk about really on this podcast, but... Well, we did. I mean, we, I did well, with, with Amanda. Yeah, right. But, yeah. but uh, so, you know, canonical watch podcast. Right. Um, <laughs> the, the novelizations and stuff don't count. But That's where you find out that I'm a clone, though. <laughs> I should really read those. Um, regardless of the spin coming from Peter Morgan or coming from Netflix, they were very, very upfront when they announced that show that it was like an eight-year passion project mm-hmm. that everyone was fully committed to making. And so ending it after five years, maybe that'll be end up being you know, narratively satisfying. The right creative choice. Right creative yeah. choice. It, yeah. it very well could be, but that wasn't the plan. But do you, I mean, I can't imagine that Netflix would be like, we want less crown. I think so. Really? I mean, Netflix is pretty upfront that original shows ought to run three years and then they cancel them. Hmm. Um, and every so often- But that's some, a flagship show for them. Yes, but I think that they're looking at their numbers and their outlay and the money and the return. And remember, the other thing about The Crown is, in, in Netflix's model, is they don't have any less of The Crown if they, that they already have. You know what I mean? That's true. It, it, it's really about the future investment to bring in new people Whereas they have five seasons that will live forever on Netflix, right. and people who will like things like that will always be encouraged to watch oh, it by the algorithm. I didn't really, I really, really thought about it like that. They're very, very, very much tightening their belts when it comes to original programming and trying to bring things to an end sooner because they feel like three seasons worth is enough to get people hooked and watching. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't need, and anything past that is kind of redundant. They did that with Bloodline. Yes. Three seasons of Bloodline. That was the model. And that's a show that demanded many, many more seasons. I know. That I needed to know if they still did bad things. Continued. Well, they're not bad. Maybe at a certain point, the twist would have been they are bad people. Yeah. Um, do you think in the next five years, mm-hmm. we will ever see any kind of metric that pits different streaming service shows against one another? Where we will we will have yeah. a a streaming Nielsen or stream, I, I'm a streaming. I'm sure people are. Chart. I'm sure that there are already companies who are offering to do that by tracking social media chatter mm-hmm. and I, I don't you know whatever other metrics might exist. Um, there almost would have to be. I, I guess at a certain point, what we're going to be seeing is just straight up arguments over subs. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, it is going to be, it's, it's, it's just subscription base at a certain point. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we'll see that in August once Peacock and HBO Max. Yeah, once, once they're in there and then that's, that's what it's about. And, and, in, and in that case, it really becomes less about um, the ratings than it is about what you're paying for. Um, you know, a, a hit sh- or a, a, a sexy, splashy show might drive you to subscribe to HBO Max for the first time. But ultimately, what they're measuring is if you stay paying the however many dollars a month to them mm-hmm. past that show. So you're not crediting it to the show. So, yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's the change. I feel like that you could compare Altered Carbon's quote-unquote ratings to the Outsiders' ratings to um, Chicago Fire's ratings. Yeah. But you're not, it, it's not even apples to oranges anymore. Yeah, Chicago it's, Fire dwarfs those shows, but is available to anybody who can plug their television into a wall. It, and now we're, but at this point we're comparing, you know, cantaloupes to chicken pot pies. Like yeah, it's right. just, it's not even the same. Right. And their goals aren't even the same. Right. So yeah, it, that that's going to be the crazy thing. Like, because Netflix is in trouble if people start canceling it or if, or equally in trouble if their growth rate slows globally. Yeah. And one of the reasons their growth rate 
growth rate may slow globally isn't because people, X number of people aren't watching Lock and Key. It's because they're choosing to spend their money on other subscription services. Sure. Or, I mean, I had this conversation with Lucas Shaw, I think, um, a few months ago, where we were talking about whether or not there was a limit to the amount of subscriptions people would be willing to carry. There has to be. Well, one of the reasons why he said that that would be a concern is if there was any kind of economic downturn, Mm -hmm. which we may have. Exactly. Yeah. Considering when I looked at Twitter this morning, (laughs) different financial guys were like, I'm on fire. (laughs) It's not funny. The tweet was funny. <laughs> it was funny. Um, that's all very true. Like the the companies, the mega mega global companies that are behind these services are acting like they're in a full on arms race. Mm-hmm. And who actually watches what or what happens to what? It, it it feels this this seems like a very rich thing to say. I don't, I mean that figuratively. To be like, oh, it feels like the companies don't care about their product. <laughs> Obviously, the, the executives and creative people sure. do care. But they are building up these vast libraries to do battle on a global scale um, and spending holy fortunes. And it really is going to come down to who can compete on that level. Um, yeah, and if people suddenly aren't able to... Basically, people are acting like they're going to take cut the cord from their $200 a month cable bill. To build up a $200 a month subscription fee. Yeah. Bob, would you, where would you kind of like, just even, not even financially, but like mentally, like where would you kind of draw the line in the amount of like subscription, TV subscription services that you would pay for? I'd like to be under $100. Yeah. So that would be three to four, depending on whether or not you're using Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. But also I share all of mine with other people. So it's like I pay for two, they pay for two, my mom pays for four. Wow. Socialism is already here. Your mom pays for four. I don't know. My mom's out here just... She's just crushing. She's just crushing peak TV. Yeah, she is actually not. They they just discovered Netflix in the last six months. Are they into the Irishman? It's because of altered carbon. It's all about the Irishman. Irishman. They watched it in six sittings, like Chris Um, Ryan. That's right. That's like me. I I watched it in two sittings. I feel like I've been getting lambasted for that. I've watched it in two sittings. I just haven't finished yet. Um, I want to talk to you briefly about this uh, FX on Hulu announcing yeah. that they're bringing Terriers back because, well, not back. They're bringing. They're, it'll be available. It'll be available, which it had not been. And um, I was just thinking the other day. I was, you know, I was like, oh, you know, like I wonder what will happen to the generation, basically, of shows that don't find streaming service homes after their run, um, and or even more so ones that are like on streaming services that are so niche or so attached to the channel that they were on that just people don't even know that they're there. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that I was thinking about that I feel like could really have a great second life, even though I think it had a pretty good first life, was Battlestar Galactica, mm-hmm. which was on the sci-fi channel. And none other than Sam Esmail is working on a reboot mm-hmm. uh, of that show. Um, for Peacock. For Peacock. I don't know if Peacock will pick up the original um, and, and, and stream it. Probably. Yeah, I would imagine. Um, but that's one show where I was like thinking, I was thinking about all the shows that have been kind of popular over the last few years, especially Westworld and mm-hmm. how how much of that is 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 like in Battlestar and how what like the soap opera, the timelines, the the uncanny valley stuff, the 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 it, it's all in there. And I, I thought that that would be a real a show that I could see having a real boom in, in streaming. Mm-hmm. Um did you have one aside from Terriers? Well, let me say, I'm just thrilled Terriers is going to be available. Yeah. Um, was on my 
top 10 of the decade, just a show that I, I love and think about a lot and just captured so beautifully a tone that inspired me um, as a fan and, and then as a creator. So I think, just think that's fantastic. Um, a show that, it's funny, a show that the built into the narrative was that a few years later it would have survived because mm-hmm. its ratings wouldn't have, because the plus three stuff would have mattered more, growth would have mattered more, critical response would have mattered more than it did. It was sort of the last show of a very live ratings dependent era when it premiered 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, we've come full circle. Now I don't know if it would survive again um, because of its relatively niche spirit and yeah. vibe and, and, and ambitions. Um, so I don't know if this answers your question, and it does speak to something that will probably also end up on, on Peacock, but I was thinking a lot over the weekend about a little show called ER, which one of is the great, on Hulu, is, I think. Is available on Hulu, yeah. yeah. One of the great shows of our lifetime, if not mm-hmm. TV history. One of the most um, seismic events in TV history. I mean, it was just, the, there was, even for, we were 18 when that show premiered, um, or 17, we were seniors in high school, I believe. It premiered when the year Friends premiered, mm-hmm. 94, 95. Uh, I mean, even for people who weren't paying attention to the industry, I mean, it, it was a seismic thing. It was a hit, like, it's almost impossible to describe how big a hit it was immediately, right out of the gate. Which was bad for us who had bet big on Chicago Hope Futures uh, dude, as being the medical show I that still, was going to pop that year. I was, I was so long on Chicago Hope. Lottie you Patinkin. Were, you were years ahead on... Pete T- Berg actor. Patinkin. Yeah. Um, so anyway, just to say that this is a, it was a huge monumental show. And, and I was thinking a lot about it, like the role that it played in my life for years, I was watching it still in college and the way that it did something. So it did it, it, it was both, um, aesthetically kind of new and shocking and jarring, right? Cause it was, cause of the way it was directed and the intensity and the wonders and, and the way it made medicine seem like not like, like the friendly neighborhood doctor. It was pretty, yeah. pretty gnarly. Yeah. Um, but it was also procedural in that there were new patients in every week and you could just drop in and out over the course of the season. But it was deeply serialized um, in our relationships with these characters. Doug and Carol, man. Doug and Carol. But what about what about Mark and Susan? Yeah. Um, it was really formative as well. And what, what was what's interesting to me, and, I, and this was the question I wanted to ask you, as, as shows like that have second, third, fourth lives or whatever, I guess it was noteworthy in a way that I hadn't talked about or thought about that the next subsequent generations after ours have not only discovered and embraced the comedies of those eras, um, specifically Friends, but then, you know, a couple of years after that, well, 10 years after that, The Office, whatever, this, the, the, if they've embraced them totally yeah. and embraced them with a brain that didn't, a type of media brain that didn't, didn't exist when we first watched them, which is to say with a streaming binging brain. Yeah. Like we have to watch all 200 episodes of Friends to see the whole story. Sure. Which is not how they were intended. I don't think these generations have glommed onto the dramas of that era in the same I way. I do think that there is a pretty healthy law and order. But there's watching. no serialization there. Like that is... No, I guess not. That is, I mean... I mean, I, I'm still pouring one out for George DeZunza's character, <laughs> R.I.P. He made it one season sure. before Pauly Sorvino jumped in. Yeah. But what I'm saying is you, you, would, you would think a lesson from the last 20 years of TV would be serialization is what hooks people and they love them and people love to binge, which is the premier way to watch serialized storytelling. But the dramas of that era haven't seemed to have adjusted. And I wonder if it's because they seem slow or the commitment seems too great in a phone and iPad culture. I don't know. 
And so when you mentioned Battlestar, Battlestar Galactica, which is a hugely influential show to a lot of creators and is going to be brought back and is in that sweet spot, that kind of lost Friday Night Lights sweet spot of the, of, you know, again, the premiere 2004, which suddenly is a long time ago. Will people discover it in the same way or have people soured on that type of storytelling if it's not Game of Thrones loud and in your face and of the moment? Are people just going to keep snacking? Well, so I think that there's there's something to be said for the fact that the ex- explosions of interest in Friends in the Office, while in terms of the way they were kind of blogged about and talked about, made it sound as if people were as invested in Michael Scott or uh, Ross Geller as they were in Jack and Desmond on, on Lost mm-hmm. or Tony Soprano. Is that who you were shipping on Lost? Jack and Desmond? Together, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was like, why don't these two crazy kids, can't they make it work? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, we kind of missed the, you got to remember that like what people were doing with friends and the office is what Andy and I were doing in 1991 when we would come home and put cheers on. Yes. And we had no idea where in the run, sometimes Kirstie Alley was on, sometimes Diane Long was on. Shelly Long. Shelly Long. Diane Diane. was the person she played. Sometimes, uh, Shelly Long was on. It didn't really matter where in the arc of cheers it was. Mm -hmm. Sometimes coach was there, sometimes not. But it was essentially the same show every time. Mm-hmm. And that is the same thing for at least Friends and to some extent The Office. And I think that people kind of were like, oh, this nostalgic, you know, people are just watching The Office because they're just getting back into that Obama era content and like that feeling of the, watching The Office. I think it had way more to do with like, it was a, a, a very amusing show that you could have on like a nightlight. And the same way when you would come home yeah. and you would be like waiting for your parents to come home from work and you would just turn the TV on and watch people 80 minutes of, of sitcoms. We've spent 20 years hyping great works of art on television with good reason. And there's been incredible strides and incredible works of art and entertainment. Love is blind. But apparently. Yeah. But we also spent a lot of that time willfully blind to the fact that generally millions and millions of people use TV the way they've always used it, which is as a as a comfort and as a friend to hang out with people in situations that f- aren't too challenging yeah. and are entertaining and heartwarming, as you said. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and, you know, we certainly have seen streaming services and Netflix, like, jump back in to mm-hmm. multicam comedies. And, and there's a reason why, um, I mean, Peacock, the which details aren't, you know, flowing out yet about it. But the um, spine of that the is The spine of that comedies. is The Office and Law and & Order. Yeah, right. Or other comedies. Yeah, yeah, Because that's what people want to watch on TV, and that hasn't changed. So I, I am curious, I guess, to see so much of— some the, the previous 10, 20 years, so much of it was about TV clearing its throat and laying down a marker and saying this is the type of stories we can tell in this medium and attracting all this attention and absorbing all of the energy from the middle grade movie that ceased to exist mm-hmm. and getting movie stars and actors. And there's no question that people loved Breaking Bad and The Sopranos, but how many people loved those versus how many people continue to love yes. The Office. Yes. Smarter people than us are crunching these numbers yeah. and saying what drives ardor, what drives engagement or retention. You know, I think just anecdotally and vaguely, it seems like you need a combination of all of it for a service to survive. Like something splashy and flashy, like a little fires everywhere, mm-hmm. um, can drive media attention. Or and normal drive, people. And drive eyeballs. Well, that's for us. Yeah. For dedicated fans of the Rooneyverse, could drive people to a service like Hulu. Yeah. But what's going to still keep them there week after week is you can watch your reruns of Single Parents the day after it airs, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that 
you need a little bit of You can of watch both. Grey's on Friday. Yeah, that's what people, a lot of people use it for that. As far as your original question about whether or not the dramas of our youth will see the revival that the comedies of our youth did, I don't know. Uh, I think that there was like an interesting sort of revival of 24 when it returned a few years back. And I went back to it and watched a little bit of it. And while some episodes, some large swaths of it from the first few seasons are, are quite watchable. Yeah. It's a lot of episodes. Yeah, that I think you that's that that is definitely the barrier for entry and with good reason, which is where something it was a different time where you could look at something like Twin Peaks now, especially the first eight or nine episodes, and it's still groundbreaking sure. and totally unique. But the other shows that were being hailed at that period for different reasons. Like even Homicide Life on the Street. Homicide or taking it back a little bit earlier, Hill Street Blues yeah. or St. Elsewhere, which were Miami Vice. Absolutely great shows in their era. They were also very much of their era. They were by nature um diluted. Yeah. They made too many of them. Like, Ally McBeal was fucking daffy, the stuff they had to come up with to make yeah, all those and, episodes. And they were they were the best that anyone expected, honestly, at the time, which which sounds really snide. But it's also the 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 tools the creators were given, the expectations they mm-hmm. were working under, that's what was created. So that ages less well than the, the theatrical-like simplicity of a three-camera setup with some jokes. Um, all of this is to say... Of all the scenarios I gamed out for myself in my life, being the age that I am in the now the third decade of the new century, that my daughter would be quoting Jody Sweeten from the first Full House because she and her friends have discovered this show and uh, love it. Is on is on Netflix. Yeah, did not see that coming. Wow. But I thought she would be quoting um, uh, Anthony Mackie from Altered Carbon or Buns. You know, from Hill Street Blues, Dennis oh, yeah. Franz's character. Yeah. <laughs> and then you had a short-lived spinoff. Remember Beverly Hills Buns? Yeah. It's a shock that the stuff didn't, didn't take off. But ER being kind of on the cusp made me wonder, because it is so comfort- comforting and familiar in its way, and it's soap operatic, but there doesn't seem to be the same desire for that, because maybe, we, maybe those itches are scratched in other ways by the Well, maybe once choices. it's more in, like, it's like, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens if, the, if Peacock winds up really front and center, like promoting it as if it's almost like one of the flagship shows. Yeah, because I, it it seems like a smart play to me. I mean, one of the things about Peacock that they've already announced is they're going to be showing Fallon and Myers early, so mm-hmm. you can watch those in prime time. But you sandwich those with like five hours of office law and order, and then maybe you run ER at 7 p.m. or you run it at 10 p.m., where it used to be every night. You're, you're almost going to get eyeballs by accident. Like it's, it's a very compelling and enjoyable show to watch. Yeah. Um, I do not have any stock in ER, I should say. All my stock was in Chicago, Chicago Hope. And it, it, it crashed. It was like we had all the money tied up in caves in Chicago Hope. And that's why we pod twice a week now. Well, our cave stock is looking good. <laughs> our cave stock is coming back. Uh, Greenwald, you're the best. What a, what a pleasure. What a journey. Bobby, thank you. We've gone... It's almost as if we, the two of us, went into a dark did subterranean space Did we go into the boy together. cave or did we go into the gift shop cave? The boy cave? I think we should stop podcasting now. <laughs> Be sure to pay at the gift shop for answers. <laughs>